Your move, creep. Mission Black Freezer. You both in Coco. Dino DNA. Son, your ego is writing checks your body can't cash. It's the only thing I know how to do. It's a good looking boy. I'm a member of the Imperial Senate. That's right, Lord! Welcome to Earth. You crossed the line. You know, that's just like, uh, your opinion, man. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Retrograde Podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about older movies. We talk about how they were made, how they were received, and whether or not they hold up. I am Austin. And I'm George. So, this is our second part in talking about 2002's Spider-Man, directed by Sam Raimi, featuring Tobey Maguire, Kristen Dunst, James Franco, Willem Kirsten, James Franco, (laughs) Willem Dafoe. And we kind of had a lot to say about the film in the first part. We're just talking about what has aged well, what hasn't story-wise. But this time we wanted to talk about the making of this film. Because, like it or not, it's a big film for the industry. It was kind of a monumental shift in how things changed for the industry. And if you really think about it, I mean, 2001 and 2002 were huge years uh, for movies, right? Because Mm -hmm. in 2001... You had Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. And then you had the Lord the Lord of the Rings films coming out. Yep. Two fantasy, high 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 concept fantasy properties. But we don't see the industry today being ruled by fantasy films. They're dominated by superhero films. It's really started with kind of Blade in ninety eight and then two thousand with X. Well, before that with, with Batman. And well, before yeah. that with the Christopher Weave Superman. Well, yeah, but like I always said earlier. There was a rough period. Like, Batman didn't kickstart everything. It was it was a super good, successful uh, film franchise that only had two films. But it didn't really kick things off. Because then there were films, some comic book films that just didn't blow up. And then you had Batman and Robin and Batman... Uh, Batman. Yeah, you had lulls and, like, you had... Because Batman, the Michael Keaton one, was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they started that, that TV show. I think... Most people our age, when they think of Batman, they probably think of that TV show with uh, Mark Hamill voicing the Joker. The animated series. But it, Yeah, but it did have that like period where, oh, this isn't cool anymore, mm-hmm. you know, after the George Clooney Batman. But ever since Spider-Man, I would say that it has kind of remained constant. Well, it was, it Blade in 98 made mm-hmm. people like, oh, oh, you can make a pretty cool kick-ass superhero movie. And then X-Men came out. It's like, oh, this is really interesting, especially because the X-Men, the animated series, was was so goofy, right? Yeah. With the spandex suit and kind of the way it was portrayed. You know, if you had asked people, how do you make that into live action? It might have looked very different. And then you had Mm Spider-Man, which grounded the character. It made it feel real, but fantastic. It still had just like a little bit of that goofiness, too absolutely it made it accessible. it found a way to like yeah i found a way to make it all work because i feel like x-men is is goofy and then the movie tried to make it like more serious ish but it, in making it look more serious it kind of looks goofy still but i think in spider-man it like leans into in, into itself you know so much of spider-man has to do with his outfit you know what i mean yeah and they tried to to give you that outfit from the comics i don't think they tried to do that for x-men or even Blade. Like, the original Blade did not look like Wesley Snipes' Blade. Well, there was something about Sam Raimi's Spider-Man that kind of made things feel grounded, but fun, 
and exciting like a Hollywood blockbuster should, but it also had that heartwarming aspect to it, that relatability, right? Blade wasn't mm-hmm. relatable to a lot of people, right? It was an R-rated action film with vampires. Yeah. <clears throat> and then you had the X-Men films. That wow, cool. I like the original X-Men films. I like the Brian Singer X-Men films. Um Yeah, same. But they don't have the same level of heart or relatability. It's a cool concept that when you watch it, it's like, oh, wow, this is kind of neat. It kind of like, oh, I really can see what they'll do with the characters in the future in terms of like the settings and the conflicts. It's like, it's really cool. But Spider-Man, people fell in love with the character. And when Mm -hmm. Spider-Man 1 ended, it was like, I want to see this character's journey still. And I think that's, Spider-Man was the perfect, it had some of the kick-ass goofiness from blade but it was grounded like the x-men but it was really relatable and fun and it was just exciting overall it was the perfect it had the it was a perfect concoction of all these elements yeah yeah i think it's really like when we get into the history of spider-man i think it's really interesting how this character like one thing that's remained constant is how relatable he is Mm -hmm. And how people have their own ideas of how to represent this character. And then that becomes a part of the character's legacy. And how that continues to happen to this day. I, I It's really cool. I, I went into, um, for listeners out there, I went into like kind of the origin of where Spider-Man came from. And how did we go from a comic book from the 60s to the live action film that we know and love? Um, yeah, let's go for it. Let's start at the beginning. Start at the very beginning. This is, you know, 1960s. The actual origin of whose idea Spider-Man was is apparently up for debate because you have these comic book guys, Jack Kirby and Joe Simon. Uh, Kirby says that he came up with the idea for Spider-Man and that eventually became the Silver Spider and that eventually became the Fly in the Archie Comics series. Um, however, like when we think of Spider-Man, we usually think of Stan Lee and Steve Ditko, Ditko, who's a comic book artist who came up with the costume for Spider-Man. The the Kirby thing, that was they're all just like talking amongst themselves and trying to come up with an idea for a superhero, I guess. But that that didn't it's not the same. It's kind of like a social network. If you'd invented Facebook, you'd invented <laughs> Facebook. You know, yeah. that's what it reminds me of. Um, but I'm I'm going with the story that Stan Lee and Ditko invented this guy. Lee wanted to wanted to make a hero that was relatable for teens, so he came up with this character, Spider Boy, and he was heavily inspired by this pulp magazine about a crime fighter called The Spider, and they actually turned the spider into a film serial. Directing the acts of a band of ruthless criminals, the mysterious and masked gargoyle, backed by millions from an unknown power, attempts to wreck production for national defense. The police, baffled, seek the aid of Richard Wentworth, a famous amateur criminologist. Sometimes masquerading as the spider, thus concealing his identity from both criminals and the police, Wentworth pits his wits and strength against the gargoyle in preventing sabotage, subversive activities, and other crimes. So he read this as a kid and was like, okay, I that's my starting point. And then... Uh, the idea of Spider Boy becoming Spider Man came from the fact that if you call the kid, if you call him Spider Boy, he's gonna sound weaker compared to other superheroes. So Spider Boy became Spider Man, mm-hmm. and Spider Man starts with an S, ends with a man, kind of similar to Superman. So 
he added a hyphen between spider and man. <laughs> and, and then uh, Ditko would come up with the way the character looked. And the studio, Marvel Comics, was not like super into the idea. So that they're like, okay, we'll put your character in this other series that is going to get canceled in 15 issues called Amazing Fantasy. And Spider-Man made his debut in the comic book world in the last issue at number 15 featuring Spider-Man on the cover of the of the the comic book and that comic book issue sold better than anything Marvel had sold in in the year in years so Marvel greenlit the amazing Spider-Man to start up his own series several months later and that became the Peter Parker that we know and love he was so popular that in 1977 they actually turned Spider-Man into a made for TV movie and if you go on YouTube you can actually find clips of this movie. And boy, how far have we come from oh this God. guy? <laughs> have you seen it? No, I haven't. Oh, man. It looks like uh, it's it. I feel like people made uh, like when people start getting camcorders and making their own films and stuff. It probably has the same amount of quality as, <laughs> as this is this show. The world's favorite comic book hero followed by 84 million readers a year. Now, he comes alive. For the first time on the screen, you'll see it all. The spectacular adventures of the amazing Spider-Man. He can do the things a spider does, you know, uh, climb walls and, and spin webs, and he's very, very strong. You've heard about him. You've read about him. Now, you'll see him in action. Kill him. No challenge is too great. No enemy is too strong. The most popular, most daring, most exciting superhero in the entire world. At last, he comes alive for his most incredible adventure. Um, I believe it was developed by CBS. And CBS was actually churning out a bunch of superhero shows at the time. There was a Captain America show. There was a Doctor Strange show. There was The Incredible Hulk. There was Wonder Woman. Um, I oh, don't with, know was that with, uh, what's her name, Linda Carter, I think? Wonder Woman! Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Um, so even though the show was popular, they canceled it because they're like, well, we don't want to be a superhero network. <laughs> Even though that's that's what they were making, a bunch of superhero shows. Yeah, yeah. They were like, uh, let's just cancel Spider-Man. And this Spider-Man, there was only Spider-Man, Jonah, J. Jonah Jameson, and Aunt May. And Aunt May is played by a different actress in every episode she's in. Why? I, I don't know. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Like, like, that doesn't matter. She's not the main character. <sighs> um, and he's just like, he has like the Spider-Man powers. You know, he's, he's on, he's using his hands to crawl walls. He's... Uh, shooting webs at people but the webs are like almost like nets that just trap people and stuff anyway japan there's this production company called toei uh which you they kind of do like this uh super team action they're called like sentai like these sentai shows it's kind of like power rangers where you have like these people who are like superheroes but they have to like get in these uniforms and stuff mm -hmm. um they have a three-year deal with marvel to use each other's uh, intellectual properties to make new stuff. And Toei was like, hey, the Spider-Man guy looks really cool. And they turned Peter Parker, who's, you know, a student bitten by a radioactive spider, into 
Takuya Yamashiro. A motocross racer who discovers a UFO with the only surviving alien warrior on board from Planet Spider. The name of the ship? The Marveler. <laughs> and the Marveler also transforms into like a giant mecha, kind of like Voltron, uh, called Leopardon. And the alien gives Takia his blood and he tells him to protect the world from the Iron Cross army. And aside from the outfit, and the fact that he shoots webs and can crawl on walls. The only other thing this Spider-Man has in common with Peter Parker's Spider-Man is that his father figure was also murdered. <sighs> Everything else is like super different. None of the villains that he fights are a part of uh, the Spider-Man that we know. The series was very popular. Um, and the idea of like having these robots that you can have in the episodes that you can sell as toys later on huge it was it was big money but they only had a three-year contract with marvel and once that ended they didn't want to like pay marvel to release more merchandise or continue the show or anything so they just ended and they went in a different direction with uh, these super sentai type shows where you have like these martial arts action guys who would get into these giant mechs and battle kaiju and stuff so in 1985, Roger Corman, who we talked about in our Little Shop of Horrors episode, he directed the original Little Shop of Horrors, he had optioned to make a Spider-Man live-action film. However, Stanley and Corman argued over the budget, and the rights went to Canon Films. And they actually came up with this idea, because I guess they didn't understand what Spider-Man was, to make a story about this photographer named Peter Parker who transforms into a tarantula monster against his will. I read about that. That is beyond... <laughs> which is funny because they eventually adapted that story into an actual comic where... Yeah, isn't that funny? Yeah, Peter actually starts growing extra limbs and he slowly <laughs> turns into a, a tarantula. But it's like a yeah. it's like a David Cronenberg kind of fly thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's supposed to be scary. But these guys were like, oh, this is just the hero now. Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's it's like, oh, this Spider-Man makes money? What's Spider-Man? No, don't tell me. I know. <laughs> um, so Lee did not like this. Thank God. So it ended up... It's weird because he really was a fan of Japanese Spider-Man. Yeah. He thought that the, what they were doing was really cool. And I have, I have some clips of it. And the way it's filmed is very silly. It's very campy. But it's so much more funny and enjoyable than the 1977 American version. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to to prove it with words, but just watching it, like Japanese Spider-Man looks funny. Like it leans into its the ridiculous concept so hard. And the way that the camera moves and the action that happens in it is like 
hell yeah, this is funny. I could watch this. Uh, so Lee didn't like the, the scary tarantula monster guy. Um, so that led to another set of writers, Ted Newsom and John Broncado, to do a version of Spider-Man, putting him against Doc Ock. Cannon was super excited about this movie. They were going to give it $20 million, which was huge at the time. Like $20 million, that's more than Aliens, I think. Yeah, it's more than Aliens. But Cannon was not doing very well financially. And they went under and the film was never made. Well, and also, However, we should reiterate that this isn't Canon the company. This is a, like the, the camera company, right? This is a different type of Canon. This is a production Oh, yeah, this company. is a different type of Canon. Um, we, could, we could talk about that on, on another episode. Because I think it's all really interesting in how history repeats itself. Like the idea of Spider-Man, the intellectual property, being fought over by several different companies and then nothing happens. You know, like, it's just, all right, then no movie gets made. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> all right, Spider-Man goes away. And people are like, no, we like Spider-Man. <laughs> um, so the rights holder, uh, Menahem Golan, Golan uh, he sold theatrical rights to Spider-Man to Carol Co., which was a production company, the independent production company that would be behind James Cameron's Terminator 2. And after Terminator 2's success... They paid Cameron $3 million to deliver a 57-page scriptment, which is not exactly a script, kind of a treatment, it's kind of a hybrid of the two, of Spider-Man in 1993. And this is where things get a little, um, what I was talking about, the intellectual property being fought over. It comes up again because he says that his scriptment was based off of the source material, not by the scripts from Newsom and Broncado. And they eventually go to the Writers Guild and like, hey, this guy ripped us off and we're not getting credit for this movie. But the Writers Guild did not side with them. In this movie, Peter was kind of dark, morally ambiguous. And this article in the LA Times describes him as sometimes sadistically violent. (laughs) But he featured organic web shooters, Mm -hmm. which is something that we see in 2002 Spider-Man. A wise decision, I think. Yes, it's a decision that... I believe I could be wrong, but I think Cameron made this decision and no, then the did. screenwriter and then the, like first, like, I don't think I don't know if Spider-Man ever had organic web shooters. Oh, gotcha. In the comics before. I'm not sure. Uh, I know that the whole idea of an alien coming. It's it's really interesting. I don't know if it'll make it. In the I episode, don't think but I don't think organic shooters were ever an actual thing because I it, know that for a fact that. When this movie was had the organic web shooters revealed, people were upset. Sam Raimi went on to say that he got a lot of hate for that. Yeah, which makes no sense. I, I believe in the comics, when the symbiote attaches itself to Spider-Man, somehow he gets more spider powers and he gets the organic web shooters in that way when the alien combines with them. Mm-hmm. But like I was saying, the Spider-Man suit, super important to Spider-Man. To Spider-Man fans, too. Mm-hmm. So when they started changing his suit, the fans were like, why are you changing his suit? Change it back. So they had to come up with a reason why Spider-Man would get rid of his black suit. And then you get Venom. And then you get the monster Spider-Man again. It's it's so interesting like how these decisions, how fans influence the, the outcome of, of a, the story that they're invested in. Yeah. And that black Spider-Man suit became popular years later. It's like included yeah. in every single Spider-Man game as an unlockable skin. Mm-hmm. Ah, those me all fans. And and the the whole idea from as like an alien coming down and somehow its blood or 
DNA getting mixed with Spider-Man kind of reminds me of the Japanese Spider-Man. That's what I was going to say. An alien kind of influenced him. It's kind of like everything's influencing itself one way or another. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, where was I? It's Cameron, sadistic, violent, organic web shooters. Yeah, it was the villain. From what I read, it was a lot darker, too. Like, apparently there was a sex scene between him and Mary Jane on top yeah, that's of what the I, Empire That's State. what I read on, on a Wikipedia. You go ahead no, it, it. Just, it was supposed to be on some building at the very top, Empire State, I think. And I'm just like, it, that's when I realized, oh, wow, there's no sex scene between Peter and, and Mary Jane in the Sam Raimi films. It's still pretty horny, though, I think. No, 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 it is. But, like, you know, I've always been a proponent of, like, you know, just don't be afraid to have sex scenes just present in films. Like, if you don't want to, that's fine. Not every mm-hmm. film needs them. But if you are, be romantic about it. But it's funny because these Sam Raimi films don't have any suggestion of sex. But they are still horny. And I'm like, oh. It- yeah, I'm, I'm thinking specifically of that scene where he's upside down. Oh, and she pulls yeah. his mask well, but- off, like, a little slowly and then makes out with him. Yeah, a guy that she's known for like maybe three minutes collectively. <laughs> but I feel maybe she kind of knows at this point that he's Peter Parker and she knows that Peter Parker's into her and she's into Peter Parker. Yeah. I don't know. Well, it's one of those things where it's like, don't be afraid of being romantic. You know, yeah. don't be afraid of being romantic and being sexy and stuff. I just thought it was funny because reading that like parts of reading the description of James Cameron James Cameron's like story his take on it was just like oh my god it made me realize oh there are no sex scenes in those Spider-Man films <laughs> even though I'd seen yeah. those I have seen those films so many times each of them I just thought it was funny that that was the moment I realized that that was the thing yeah and that scene the is raining and like you clearly see her nipples through her shirt yes yeah like that's you, y'all did that on purpose. That was a, that was a very 2000s thing. Uh, even yeah. 2010s. I mean, I know like Jennifer Aniston, I guess. Like you can see her nipples on Friends, which but it's like a daytime show. Um, yeah, yeah, people did... have been doing that for years. So that's definitely yeah. a product of its time. Yeah. But this movie never came to be because... So the guy sold the, the theatrical rights to um, Carol Co. But the television rights were with Viacom and the home video rights were with MGM, I think. So they all have these different rights. But when you make a movie in theaters, like eventually all of that's going to go on on home video and um, on television and stuff. Mm-hmm. So they all suit each other and the movie never happened. Uh, but eventually, or even like the rights holder was like, hey, y'all are making this movie without me. Uh, So he, he sued, he sued, um, Carol Co. as well. So the bulk of it is just everyone owns different rights and everyone's suing each other because they can't properly profit from this movie or release the film without the other people interrupting. And that, I mean, that happened for years. That was, and it was, still happens. Yeah. I mean, that's why we have this whole uh, Morbius and Venom that's mm-hmm. apart from Spider Man, but still a part of Spider Man. But, but even the Morbius thing is a lot more simplified than what was happening in the 80s. Because they were trying to make this movie since the 80s. They got Toby yeah. Hooper to direct it. The guy that made the, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That's mm-hmm. insane. They've been, they've been trying to make this movie for years. And it's always yeah. been rights and licensing issues. Mm-hmm. It's a miracle and, that like, this film got made eventually. Well, eventually, there is, if there's money to be made, they will take as long as they want to make that movie. True. Tom Cruise was going to be Spider-Man. Yeah, in a version of it, he was going to be Spider-Man, which I don't... Leonardo DiCaprio. 
Yeah, James Cameron wanted J- uh, uh, Leo. It's really funny because hearing about all these stories, you can't help but wonder, like, what if? Like, what if Leo yeah. had been Peter Parker? Which would have been amazing. But reading the descriptions of it, I'm like, thank God none of these films got made. Even the James Cameron one. Like, I, I love James Cameron. And we're going to talk about Doctor Strange uh, and the, in the Multiverse of Madness at the end, just kind of briefly. And in that movie, the trailer for Avatar 2 came out. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even a big fan of Avatar, but I, I do I defend... I will see that movie in theaters. Huh? <laughs> I will see that movie in theaters. Yeah, I'm, I'm not the biggest James, uh, Avatar fan, but I, I, I do like James Cameron, and I think he does yeah. put out quality. I have a mm-hmm. reason as to why I think Avatar turned out the way it did story-wise. But that's you can talk about that on our Avatar episode. Exactly. Uh, but that's for another time. But ultimately, I am very happy that none of these pre- these projects worked out. Because number one, Sam Raimi did an incredible job. Number two, James Cameron went on to make Titanic, which is arguably, which we will talk about this year as well. Mm-hmm. James Titanic is going to be a huge movie that we talk about. But also, these stories missed the fundamental elements of Spider-Man. They were always thinking about, well, a meteor crashes and, oh, he's morally ambiguous and it's like no you you don't need any of that you all of you are misunderstanding the point of the character and i mean this happens so often or hollywood did it for such a long time i mean even still to this day that i'm like thank god that you got the right that you got raimi to do this the right Mm -hmm. guy kind of like how kevin feige got a hold of like iron man and all these characters and it's like he gets it and because he gets it People are able to fall in love with these characters, right? I mean, people talk about Guardians of the Galaxy. Tons of people know them now. But a few years ago, they weren't shit, like, to mainstream audiences. Like, they were, they were like, oh, these are, like, the, the superheroes that didn't make the team. These are, like, the, D, <laughs> the D-list Marvel heroes, right? I mean, yeah. to, to, to nerd, like, to actual comic book nerds, you know, they, they knew who they were. They had great stories and stuff. But mainstream audiences didn't see the appeal. You give it to someone like James Gunn and Kevin Feige, they understand it. They're not like Canon and Viacom or it's just like they understand the the value in telling the underdog story, mm-hmm. which which is what what we got in the two thousand two Spider Man. Absolutely. Um, the the rights did eventually get to Sony Pictures Entertainment in nineteen ninety nine, and I think that's when we get into the actual 2002 spider-man mm-hmm. well that's when that's when things really became serious and again yeah i mean thanks to the success of blade and x-men there was a there was mm-hmm. a newfound feeling that oh if done right we can we can profit off of this property yeah man it's it's funny because when they got this film actually up and running when sony got their hands on it they had a lot of filmmakers lined up to direct this thing. Do you have the list? I don't have the list. I have I, the list. Let me let me get those names from you then. So the studio lined up Roland Emmerich, who we've talked oh, no. about. Yeah, who we've talked about before on this podcast, Independence Day. Tony Scott, Ridley Scott's brother, uh, True Romance. Uh, taking a Pelham one two three. I mean, this is recent, obviously. What? But you mean Top Gun? Oh, 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 oh my Gun. god! Oh my god! What the <laughs> fuck, George? Jesus Christ! I didn't even think about Top Gun. Can you imagine Spider Man <laughs> flying a jet? God, I'm such an idiot. Ugh. Forgive me, guys. Forgive me. Also, Days of Thunder, which is a great Top Cruise film. Then you also had Chris Columbus, the director of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Wow. Just three directors, and we've already talked about one of the each each of their films or one of the films mm-hmm. that they each directed. Then you had Barry Sonnenfield, 
who I'm not too familiar with, Tim Burton, Michael Bay, Ang Lee, and John DeBont, director of Speed, M. Night Shyamalan, and then one of my favorite directors off this list, David Fincher. All these men were approached to direct Spider-Man, which is insane to think about. Yeah, we would have got a very different Spider-Man. I, I like Tim Burton's Batman, but I already got that in Batman. I don't need to see him do that to Spider-Man. And it's funny because he know? said that he was a DC guy. That he Which really... is a dumb thing to say, I think. <laughs> I mean, it makes... Don't limit yourself like that. Eh, I mean, if you like DC a lot, I get it. But it's just funny because they were saying how some of these directors just wanted the gig because they just wanted to work right mm-hmm. uh it didn't seem that some it didn't seem like some of them were really interested in dwelling into the character uh, it says like yeah. most of the director's approach were just interested in the job than in the story itself david fincher wanted to not make it an origin film he kind of he didn't want to depict the origin story he instead pitched the film that was kind of like about gwen stacy dying Right, but the studio didn't want to go in that route. Columbus passed on the film instead to focus on Harry Potter, which was a smart decision. Burton didn't want to do it because he was a DC guy. <laughs> Jesus. And Amy Pascal, her choice was Sam Raimi, which and- is the the best choice. Like even like it, I mean, maybe you could say that I'm biased because I really like the Sam Raimi movie, but I I don't know. I feel like if you're gonna make a Spider-Man movie, starting it with Gwen Stacy's death is not a good idea i even the the amazing spider-man series got that right you know why should we care about this guy's girlfriend dying when we don't even know who who the guy is or who the girlfriend was to him well it's hindsight's 2020 right yeah because the sam raimi back then is not the sam raimi from now granted he had still made evil dead but evil dead was a low budget film uh army of darkness was pretty big i don't i can't remember the success of that but i mean you put him up against like you know these guys that had made big action blockbusters like Top Gun and Independence. He's the underdog compared to them. Absolutely. And for them, they're just like, well, why do why should we give it to this kid who made a weird, goofy horror film, right? I mean, he had done other stuff, but none of it hit as hard as Evil Dead did, right? Right. Or, and I mean, he was Dark Man. He had made Dark Man as well, but even Dark Man, I don't think was a commercial success. It was just like a weird. He made up his own superhero for that, right? Exactly. So they saw it, but I'm guessing he said that he pitched himself and how much he loved the character, how he related to him. And eventually Sony just said, all right, well, hey, we'll we'll give it to you. Let's go for it. Which I think is the smartest decision they've ever made. Like, that's not even a a hyperbolic statement. That's probably, I feel like Spider-Man has been keeping Sony alive as a production company. Yeah, right? at the studio, they still have the original Spider-Man, the 2002, like, posted on their lot. Like, there is a there is a piece of, like, billboard area that's dedicated to Spider-Man 2. <laughs> <laughs> or Spider-Man, the 2002 one. They haven't taken it down. And I spoke to someone who used to intern work slash work there, and he's like, yeah, they're never going to take that down. That's, like, their holy grail. <laughs> But it makes sense, though. I mean, it makes sense. Spider-Man, this this movie was huge. I mean, we talked about it in the first part, but this had the the biggest opening weekend of all time (laughs) back in 2002. Even adjusted for inflation. The biggest opening of all time or of all time at the time? The second one. So at the time, the biggest opening opening weekend weekend. for any film released at that point. Bigger than Titanic, bigger than Gone with the Wind, bigger than Star Wars. Take that and think about that. That's fucking huge. I imagine that scene of Spider-Man stopping the train. But like, 
the 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 cliff the drop is just like disney trying to acquire spider-man and, <laughs> or acquire sony studios and he's just like stopping the train like no we're staying. But yeah, I mean, you had all these directors lined up and Sam Raimi really was the underdog. And thank God he got it because Jesus Christ, I can't imagine. I mean, yeah, hindsight's twenty twenty. I can't really imagine any of these directors doing a Spider-Man film. I love like, David I Finger. can imagine them, but I would. I can't imagine enjoying them as much as this one. Okay, yes, that. I could imagine it, You taking their sensibilities and applying it to Spider-Man. And it just doesn't flow. David Fincher? I, I love no. the man. I don't think he's made a bad movie. Alien 3. That wasn't his fault, though. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll defend him on that. That was a terrible <laughs> movie, but I, yeah. I, look, <laughs> I love Michael Bay. I think he's a Gross. great action director. I think he's a fantastic action director. Terrible for Spider-Man. I love Independence Day. But Roland Emmerich? No, sir. Tony Scott? Love the man. Can't do it. Chris Columbus? Thank God he said no so we could get Harry Potter. It's just, you know what I mean? You know, mm-hmm. and thank God we didn't give it to M. Night Shyamalan either. You never know, man. Maybe <sighs> maybe it would have been his uh, his thing, you know, like maybe Avatar wasn't his thing. But Spider-Man would have been. I no. don't know. I sincerely. I mean, well, you never know. <laughs> you never know. But it is a it is a really interesting way how they got this film rolling. God, it's so so many things had to kind of fail. Fall into place. Fail People and had fall to fight over it to like keep it from being made. Um, but let's let's get into the the development of the actual movie. Yeah. So we talked about how they were trying to make this movie since the eighties, right? Mm-hmm. And it finally got made twenty years later, thanks to some some of the previous superhero films released doing pretty well. Sam Raimi really was the underdog when it came to making the film, but thankfully he got it. However, making the film just brought in so many issues so many issues yeah in terms of also bringing also just with the idea of casting who's going to be peter parker right and Mm -hmm. sam raimi loved toby he was his first choice but the studio was interested in other people leonardo dicaprio freddie prince jr chris o'donnell jude law chris klein wes bentley and heath ledger all these guys right who were big name actors at the time toby was he he was he was a good actor but he hadn't starred in a big blockbuster picture right honestly i can't blame him for wanting to cast leo uh, for leo because he was in titanic one of the biggest films of all time so but eventually sam raimi won out and they got toby sam raimi did some like camera tests with toby to kind of show that he that he could you know like perform these stunts and kind of bring an attitude to it have you seen it I've seen some of it, and I'm like, yeah, I'm seeing like the dark, violent Spider-Man here. It makes no test. sense. <laughs> it makes no sense with the vibe that they were trying that they ultimately went with in the film. I feel like there were f bombs in the screen test too. Yeah, but <laughs> it was. I think it was really just to show how he could look like he was fighting and stuff. You know. Yeah. Even though he's shirtless and maskless in the movie, but I, or in the it, test, like the but... way he's lit too. Like you don't really see his face. Yeah. He looks like. He looks like freaking Batman. Yeah. Oh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Batman. He looks a lot closer to Batman. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and Toby, once he got the role, he was like committed. You know, he worked out. He's uh, he's vegetarian. So he mm-hmm. his diet. I thought he be- was vegan. Oh, he, I'm sorry. He's vegan. Sorry. So he's vegan. So he had to eat a bunch of tofu. This man worked out on the gym just like six days a week. He ate so much protein like he was serious he was committed other people for that they cast like james franco he auditioned for peter parker as well but he didn't get it but they eventually 
you know, gave it, they gave him the role of Harry Osborn. The people that they got, that they wanted for Green Goblin was really interesting because they got John Malkovich. They wanted John Malkovich. Amazing. Amazing actor. Jason Isaacs, um, who we've talked about. Nice. In our, in I our think pan- he has the best hook. Yeah. The best portrayal of Captain Hook. Which we've talked about in Hook. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then also Nicolas Cage. <laughs> Out am I? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think he, oh he I, it's, I could see it, but I think Willem Dafoe just brings a certain, like, I don't know he's, if this is a douchey word, but like Shakespearean aspect to it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. I know exactly what you mean. I think John Malkovich could do that too, but I think Willem Dafoe's performance is just one of my favorite things about the movie. It would be hard to say, oh yeah, that would have been better. Like, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's just so... Fun. Like everything he says, like we said in the last episode, everything he says is like a line that I'll remember forever. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Like when he's like, you know what people want to, people like to see a hero, but you know what they else they like to see? Like to see a hero fall, die trying, fall, fail, die trying. Like the way he says it, like it brought me back to when I first saw it. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. There's that line. Look at you. I could squash you like a bug right now, <laughs> but I won't do it. his lines delivery are perfect again Nicolas Cage would have been interesting John Malkovich I think could have done it but it would have been very different I think I heard a rumor that for Spider-Man 4 Sam Raimi wanted to do Vulture and that's when they were thinking of bringing in John Malkovich (laughs) Uh, which I think would I think it would have been perfect but for for Uh. Vulture but you know uh, I mean look, look ultimately we got Willem Dafoe who's amazing I mean, he still, he, he was the main villain of No Way Home. And it worked because yeah. just the casting was right, you know? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I, I believe originally they wanted to have Doc Ock to be the uh, villain of the oh, movie for, yeah. for well, this version. Well, it's funny because in James Cameron's version, it was going to be Electro and Sandman that were going to be the primary antagonists, right? Mm-hmm. And they had the idea of two antagonists for a while. And then they were thinking of Doc Ock and Green Green Goblin. And then they just dropped Doc Ock for the sequel. Yeah, because they wanted to... I, I think Raimi said that having an origin story for three different villains would be weird. So yeah. just do... just or An origin story for three different characters would be weird. So they did an origin story for two. And you then you have that, that whole, is, like... The, the battle between these two characters that you kind of see become who they are, you know? And making it personal too, because there is that mm-hmm. surrogate father yeah. kind of feeling that you know Norman Norman likes Peter kind of a little bit better than his son, more than his son. So <laughs> you know it it bring it makes it a lot more personal. And that thing about having three origin stories makes sense, right? I mean, look look at Spider Man Three. What's one of the biggest complaints against that film? Too many villains. Even the Dark Knight, the Holy Grail of superhero films, in my opinion, right? We get the origin. Uh, we don't even have the origin of Batman because we already got that in the previous film. We get the origin of Harvey Dent. And with Joker, we never find out what where he came from. We never find out. Spider-Man 3 jumped the shark in that regard. You, know, yeah, having, you, you yeah. had the the Sandman and you had Venom. And you, and had, you had Harry the Hobgoblin. Yeah, in the beginning. So it's just like too <laughs> much. So that was definitely the right decision to do. Uh, Willem Dafoe, actually, talking about him real quick. I mean, he did most of his own stunts. Most. Not all of them, but he did most of his own stunts. And he had to learn how to ride the gl- the glider. Because he, he <laughs> said that because because you have two, two... Your two main characters have masks on. Right. And 
you know, John Diska or Di- John Ditska, I believe. Uh, the the artist? The visual effects artist for on this oh, film. Did, that's funny how his name is so similar to the Ditka? artist who drew Spider-Man. Yeah. It's eerily similar, yeah. His is with a Y. Ditko is with an I, I believe. But yeah. Huh. Um, John Dixtra, right? Who worked on the original Star Wars as their VFX artist. Mm-hmm. He was saying how, you know, when you... They're trying to add enough human elements to the character's movements right because if you're creating a complete cgi character you lose some of the humanity which is why none of the shots in the film are completely 100 percent cgi right they still have some real element to it right Um, and you know like there's that scene where like when toby has when peter has his original costume the one that he uses at the wrestling match they kind of superimpose uh toby's eyes over the the cgis to kind of make it a little bit more real he's right he's yeah. correct and so willem dafoe yeah. understood this and he's like i need to be in the suit i have to wear this suit in order to add my own physical language to the character because they're not going to be able to see me they hear me but they can't see my reflection they can't see mo yeah there's just some a way that he moves that's like that's willem dafoe mm-hmm. you know I, I don't know how to explain it but it's there it's there Definitely. The way he moves, even without the the mask, like in, in No Way Home, the way he, it's like he's he's gone back to 2002 and he's playing that guy. Just like no time has passed, which is a funny thing, because he said that the only way he would come back for No Way Home is if he did a lot of his own stunts. And that dude, how old is he now? He's like 60. Dude is old as fuck. And he's still doing his most of his own stunts. That is like dedication. I and he's that. riding the glider too. Yeah, and My there's God. like there's behind the scenes footage of him riding the glider and or practicing on <laughs> the glider. And that guy it, is it's Go intense. Ahead. It looks wild, and they were able to do it with no accidents. Thank God. Well, um, they, that with no accidents. But uh, I note that uh, earlier on in was well, two things earlier on in uh, Willem Dafoe's career, he was auditioning to be a motorcycle gang guy and. One of the requirements was to know how to ride a motorcycle, but he didn't know how to ride one. He lied and said he did, and then he, he it was obvious that he didn't know how to ride a motorcycle when he got the part, so they had to train him on set. But as far as no accidents on Spider-Man, like I know someone did die during the construction of a set. Yeah. Like a, a forklift like crushed him when he was in a construction basket, which is, I think what they call it, those like uh, baskets that you would have your workers on, like on the side of a building and stuff. It's it's always tragic to, to read about stuff like that. Yeah. It's unfortunate too. Um, it's wild because I never, I've never heard about it. I, you know, for as much as I've read up and watched this movie, I never knew someone died with doing. Yeah, they, more they keep that st- stuff like out of mainstream media. Yeah. Like the, there's nothing about people dying on movies. No, but no, it, no. it really shouldn't happen i feel like especially now like as much as we complain about cgi and like practical effects are better well if somebody dies no practical effect is worth that no you know well cgi is a tool and you have to know how to use Mm it how to use it if you use it well people will forgive it right and yeah Yeah. it's nice having practical effects but i mean man you start adding some physical movements to to die No one needs to die no, to no, make no. a movie. No, thing. and I will say this. Um, it is always unfortunate. It's always unfortunate. And no life is is ever worth making a film. It, 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 I mean, just in any field, 
you or a lot of fields yeah. you always run the risk of an accident happening i mean construction workers i have no idea what the number is on that but i mean i'm sure people die all the time just because it's it's difficult work and i mean we tend to forget but this stuff is huge you know we mm-hmm. see the final product we don't see the months that went into the the prep you know it's yeah it's insane. I mean, we were, I mean, on, in our Transformers episode, we talked about that stunt on the freeway where that bus is, that bus is split in half. And they were talking about all the dangers that could have gone into that. And even Michael Bay was like, nobody's going to die. We're going to do this right. Thank God nobody did. But it's like when you least expect it, shit like that will go down, you know? Yeah. Uh, sometimes, though, it is negligence. Uh, oh, like, yeah. Most recently, Rust. the incident on Rust where camera woman was shot and killed. Because the the gun was supposed to have not been loaded, but it was loaded. And here's the but, thing: we still don't know who was responsible for that. I mean, people are saying it was the gun handler. Some people are saying it was the director. It was the actor. I mean, we we don't know. None of us were there. But there have been reports about how they actually had live ammunition on set. Yeah, like they were they were that, they were that's shooting negligence. That, absolutely, that was totally uncalled for. Mm-hmm. There was um, and, there was a story about how the camera crew. That mo- the day that the cinematographer, what's her name? The cinematographer, Helena Hutchins, Hutchins. Yeah, Helena Hutchins. When the day she died, early in the morning, the camera crew actually left. They I don't know if they quit or they were fired, but they were like, this set is batshit insane. It is not up to code. You guys are taking way too many shortcuts and they left. That's already a clear sign that you're running a shit show. And then mm-hmm. on that day, your cinematographer is shot and killed. That's fucking negligent. Granted, this was a a smaller independent production company film, right? It was it had nowhere near the same security protocols and budget that Spider-Man had. So I don't think it might be the same level of negligence. I don't know. I'd like to think it wasn't, but you know, I mean, but it it is something that are you talking about Spider-Man? No, yeah, Spider-Man. Yeah, it is something that I would have liked to know more about, but I couldn't really find much of what happened. It just said that, oh, the family is suing uh, Columbia Pictures for negligence or wrongful death or something. I don't know the details of what happened. You can only hope that it was everyone was doing the right thing and something the wind was too strong that day or something. I mean, another story of negligence, the Twilight Zone, which we've mentioned. Twilight Zone, yeah. Twilight Zone, which we will definitely have to cover because that is a wild in itself. But yeah, someone did unfortunately die in the making of this film. Um, thankfully, there weren't uh, other accidents or other deaths involved. Not trying to downplay the first one. No, that, that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm just thankful that you know it wasn't a Twilight Zone scenario, especially with Willem Dafoe doing his own stunts. An actor, a lead actor doing their own stunts is is. Just dangerous as fuck. I don't know how Tom Cruise is still employable. I mean, that man wants to do all of his own stunts. Because of just... how employable, like, because of how much money his movies make, I think. I it's guess, like, well, yeah. We but... got to get Tom Cruise to be in this movie. And in order to get Tom Cruise, he's going to want to do his own stunts. So let's let's try to keep him alive so he can keep making movies. Exactly. But, you know, Willem Dafoe being able to do it, you know, and he's not a stunt guy. He's an actor who has lied before about being able to do his own stunts. <laughs> So that's that's already raising some alarm bells, but thankfully it didn't happen. And that suit that he wore, wore, the Green Goblin one, didn't make things easier. It was like a 580-piece suit that took like half an hour to put on. And he had to take frequent breaks on set because it was just so heavy. So, I mean, 
that sounds like a recipe for disaster. Thank God it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did, he does such a good job. He does. I think he puts, I don't know. Sometimes when an actor gives a performance, you, they, they really put a lot of themselves into it. And then sometimes you can tell it's like, not, not really doing much. Willem Dafoe is someone who doesn't need to do a lot, but he does it anyway. Yeah. No, it's it's great. That level of dedication. And that's why he's one of the most acclaimed actors of all time, right? He's still working. At the and he is, a lot of people love working with him. So, I mean, it, it's no, re, it's no obvious, re, it's a very obvious why. Mm-hmm. It's funny because they were prototyping the Green Goblin suit and you kind of see different versions of it, right? And that was the yeah, thing. And that's, an animatronic goblin head. I yep. think was on the on the table, mm-hmm. and as much as I love animatronics and puppetry and and all this stuff, no, I, I don't like it. I don't want it in 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 this Spider Man at least. I didn't like it. In fact, I think they went with the best option. Yes. But fans hated it. I mean, fans still dislike it. That's why they kept it off of No Way Home. I thought it was because Willem Dafoe wanted to show his own face. No, apparently that was a decision that okay so. Apparently, fans dislike the costume, which I have heard before. People think they don't okay. like the costume, which I think is stupid, but okay. Uh, and number I, two, I think it's a, a hell of a lot better than the costumes in X Men. Yeah, I like X Men. What well, has some those costumes are whack. <laughs> yeah, and it makes sense. Like you know, it's body armor, and he wants to conceal his identity. It, fuck, fuck him. Uh, and then also, Marvel films just have a tendency to get rid of their characters wearing masks. Do you know what I mean? I, like I in, don't like that. that. I, I want them to... Because it is a comic book. You can't deny that. Like, lean into it a little bit, you know? Yeah. Which is... Uh, which kudos to Matt Reeves for the Batman. Because they leaned into it really well. And Nice. Where, where, oh, you haven't seen the Batman yet? I haven't yet, no. Damn! Well, I mean, it's, it's a tough viewing because it's three hours. <laughs> yeah. I do... Like, Batman's probably my favorite superhero, I think. It's a good movie. Like, and So I, I do want to see it. It's just a matter of time. No, and no, it is. I want to do these podcasts on a regular basis. <laughs> Semi-regular. But it's funny because the bulk of that movie is Robert Pattinson in the costume. Like, a lar- like I think there's more Batman screen time than Bruce Wayne. Nice. Um, and talking about being expressive with the costume, they did a, they, Robert Pattinson did a fantastic job expressing and emoting through the through the mask mm-hmm. there's one scene in particular where it's just like oh you know exactly how he feels with it like yeah. the movement of his eyes um so yeah i mean so like having the outfit having a mask on doesn't really prevent you from giving an emotive performance no 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 it doesn't and i think it it, it, it enhanced willem dafoe was able to enhance his performance through the costume people disliked it though so but i think the alternative was that animatronics and i'm like Oh, I I thought it was weird. I mean, it would have been yeah. an interesting choice, but you like, know. why would this super soldier serum turn him into a goblin? I mean, I don't, God I don't knows. Know. Even the, the the idea of the out the mask existing in that world with the context we were given is like, wait, why does his helmet look like that? I thought it, this was just to make better soldiers, not <laughs> monsters. <laughs> what? Yeah, but I don't it's know. Fi- it's fine. Like the fact that they don't explain it is is kind of funny. Is kind of campy. It leans into the the comic book aspect of it. Why was a Columbia University creating genetically enhanced spiders? And the fact that one of them was missing didn't set off alarm bells. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he's spending millions of dollars on these spiders, and it's like, oh, one's missing. <laughs> you think? Anyway, let me continue. Yeah, it's like you just have to accept some of these things because it's kind of a deal with these comic book movies. You don't have to over-explain everything. It's well, it's kind of fine if you leave it. You, there needs to be a suspension of disbelief. The fact that yeah. both Norman Osborn and Peter Parker both gained their powers in the same night, <laughs> we're fine and with didn't that. And did die. <laughs> we're fine with that. But when you yeah. when a man starts wearing a Green Goblin costume, oh no. Not not on my movie. And they, they disliked it. Man, fans wanted a reason to dislike this though i mean the, yeah. the organic shooters the costume the, and even one of the folks said in the interviews for no way home he was like yeah we kind of cut back on the the mask just because of fan backlash and kind of the response to the original costume and i was like man fuck them what do they know i but, do think it it helps his performance in this movie though because seeing his face move that way is like <laughs> well i will say the best part of no way home was in my opinion that apartment fight scene or one of the best moments yeah. was that apartment fight scene and when peter's yeah. punching him and he's smiling it's like oh my god <laughs> he, he won't stop why is he yeah, smiling little- mom <laughs> um no but it was it, it, i mean they had that animatronic costume which just looked weird and that kind of leads into some uh, something that I was mentioning earlier, which is really great about these films. They're silly but grounded. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yes, these movies are inherently silly and funny and goofy. And, you know, like, the design of Green Goblin is interesting. And it doesn't really apply to, like, military. Why would a military person wear that outfit? It serves the superhero genre aspect of the film. But it's still grounded. Do you know what I mean? Like, it has a grounded design. It's yeah, not like it makes sense anime... in that world. Yes. And that's that's the balance that Raimi strikes in this film. Making something that's really funny, but also grounded. We can see Spider-Man swinging, and we could see this Green Goblin outfit, and it all makes sense in this universe. Mm-hmm. Um, so kudos to him and that design choice. Going Did back to wanna... casting real quick. Kristen huh? Dust, Dunst. Uh, apparently they had auditioned hundreds of women for the role of Mary Jane Watson. Wow. Uh, but apparently they just didn't have the right chemistry with Toby, right? And you have to nail that chemistry. Even Elizabeth Banks auditioned before she got the role of Betty Brant. But, you know, Kate Hudson turned down the role. Jamie King. Like they had a lot of women had auditioned for it. And then Kristen, she was making a film in Europe and they flew Toby out there. Or I think they flew her back here. And they had auditioned and she thought that the, because Toby was in it, it was going to have like an indie film. And apparently when they they auditioned together, fireworks went off and it was like, oh, she's our she's our Mary Jane. And yeah, I'm really happy they went with her. And I'm glad that they yeah, went too. with her for Mary Jane, too, because the obvious choice would have been Gwen Stacy. She even thought that it's like, oh, I'm going to go for Gwen Stacy. But I don't know. I just the decision to make her Mary Jane was like great. I think it's because the Mary Jane character was more popular mm-hmm. than Gwen Stacy because Gwen Stacy was his, like in, in the early stages of Spider-Man and then they were like, we can't have Spider-Man locked down. So they killed her off mm-hmm. and then they're like, oh, he's sad now. I was like, oh, let's give him a new girlfriend, uh, Mary Jane. Ha ha ha. And then, <laughs> and then you get the Mary Jane and then she appears. They, they do that, like animated series in the mid 90s. Um, by the way, the guys who made the, the animated show in the 90s, big fans of Japanese Spider-Man. <laughs> um, so then they, they had their Mary Jane, and that became like the de facto Spider-Man girlfriend. 
So I think having Mary Jane in this movie over Gwen Stacy kind of helps people go along with the Spider-Man story because they're kind of familiar with it already. Mm-hmm. Well, and, it's, and this is interesting because when you're adapting something, you have to make choices. I mean, we've talked about this before, but you have to make clear decisions. You you have to omit things and you have to change things around. Comic book fans hate it when you change anything around because it needs to be like the comics. But this movie made some very wise decisions, like swapping Gwen Stacy for Mary Jane. We love Mary Jane. They're not going to kill her. But swapping the putting her in the scene where Gwen dies, but having her live is a big decision, right? Yeah, it references the comic book. It takes that moment, a big defining moment for Peter, kind of something that defines him. But applying it to Mary Jane makes her a lot more relevant, a lot more important. And also adding the children as being part of a choice makes that scene more impactful, which it wasn't in the comic books. So that little that little adaptation, you know, that little translation that went with it was brilliant. Great. ah, Love it. Love it. Love it when these decisions go through and they land well, you know? Mm yeah yeah but i'm wondering if that was one of the scenes that they needed to reshoot oh did you look into that i didn't you didn't i didn't oh my god i know that they had reshot some stuff particularly the scene with willem dafoe where he tells peter don't tell harry Mm -hmm. but i didn't know they so they reshot that bridge thing wait because of 9-11 huh yes i i i feel like it was that scene, but I could never find somebody on who worked on it to actually admit this. So that so I did I did a lot of research on the nine eleven aspect of this film. What's mm-hmm. interesting is that nobody is specific about what they changed or what they had to what they had to refilm and stuff. Because I know that that line was was like you mess with one of us, you mess with all, with all of us was a direct reaction to nine eleven. But part of it's like, did, I, they, did they film that after 9-11 or did they reshoot that? Like, did they film that first and then they reshot it with that line in? I can't find specifically what happened. Certain sequences were refilmed and certain images of the Twin Towers were digitally erased. That was one of the big things that happened with the film industry right after September was, do we keep any images of the Twin Towers or do we delete them? And that was something that a bunch of different filmmakers had to deal with. That was a choice that a lot that just people had to had to think about. Like I know, you know, the Sopranos, Sex and the City had images to nine to the Twin Towers, but they had to take those off. Mm-hmm. I know the Simpsons had an episode where Homer has to use the bathroom on the top floor of one of the Twin Towers. They ran, they took that episode out of syndication because of the Twin Towers. And this mm-hmm. movie, I mean, we mentioned in the first part, but it had that teaser of Spider-Man trapping the robbers in between the Twin Towers. But that was Sony scrambled to get rid of that. They're like, this does not yeah. exist anymore. Yeah, they had to digitally remove them from the, the final movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know that they did that. And I'm, I feel like there were reshoots. And I read somewhere that that scene, they made the New Yorker solidarity a thing in that movie to like, you know... Make people more proud of, of New York and to show New York as a, a place of strength and solidarity. Mm-hmm. They they all come together to stop this bad guy. I didn't. And that's the thing. I'm trying to. I was trying to figure out. Okay, what did they actually do? It because of 2000. Because of 9/11. It just says that. I mean, the thing is, people were saying that they had to. There was a scene of Spider-Man crawling up the Twin Towers that had to. That was taken out the film. Some people are saying that the Twin Towers. That that scene was in the film but just differently right but 
I mean, we there's no there's no corroborating that. Yeah, for the final film, shots of the towers were removed, though they could still be spotted in the distance in a few shots while adding scenes of Spider-Man with the American flag and New Yorkers fighting back against the Green Goblin with the line, "You mess with one of us, you mess with you mess with all of us." So it had an yeah. effect. I don't know if it was yeah. a re- if it was reshot because this movie was filmed during 9/11. Well, it, the principal photography ended before 9/11. Oh, that's but, right. But they did have to like do reshoots, which they I guess they accommodated for. Yeah. But I'm 9/11 must have happened at some point between the original prince the principal photography and the release. Mm-hmm. And then you had that you mess with one of us, mess with all of us line. That's like okay, maybe this was. A, a response mm-hmm. and then the flag i've seen in multiple places that it was put in after mm-hmm. yeah like same. the line is like hmm i i just assumed that it once i heard about uh, i think it was like a reddit article or something that one of my friends showed me it was like oh my god this makes a lot of sense and i'm kind of thinking about other things that that came out around that time one of them being halo and how in halo you're like a kind of a patriotic soldier fighting against the alien religious zealots. And I'm like, oh, is this like giving kids a way to fight back against the Taliban? Like, I don't know about game? Halo, though, because that game was in development for years before 9-11. And it released on to, in 2001. In November. So I, I feel like... Maybe, How much work can they do between September and November? No, I think that the, the reason why it was so popular... Maybe it was a way to like channel grief in a, a weird fantasy way. Yeah. Maybe seeing uh, this superhero who lives in New York and this city come together was a way for some Americans to like feel good about America or something. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. No, no. Maybe it wasn't in the in- intent, but it is in the way that the audience has received it. No, no, no. I think you're right. And it's funny because... Um, I read multiple articles where they're talking about like, okay, when you're going through something like 9-11, there's definitely a mourning period. And then there's a period where you kind of want to escape. Like there's people want an escape, right? People are angry and they do want to escape. But how do you escape appropriately, right? Mm-hmm. How long is that grieving process? And that was something that people didn't know. You know, the Sopranos and Sex and City took out images of the Twin Towers. There was a movie... I think Donnie Darko was affected by this, by it as well, because in that movie, a big part of it is a plane crashing. Oh, and a lot of theaters didn't want to put a movie in theaters at a plane crashing. Yeah, man, there's a filmmaker called Jennifer Westfelt who had made a film called Kissing Jessica Stein, who kept the Twin Towers in. Right. So her film premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival on September 10th of 2001. And she recalled the joy that her film received and people applauded it. You know, people loved it. And then her film screened on September 12th. And that same image of the Twin Towers brought out a reaction of gasp and sobs. Mm. And she was like, do I take the image out or do I keep them in? She took them out. But she couldn't help but wonder, like, what that, you know, what that react if that was the right yeah. call. Scorsese and Gangs of New York actually kept the Twin Towers in for a while. I don't know if he ultimately took it out still, but at the end of Gangs of New York, it's kind of like an image of New York. And people were pissed because they were mm. like, well, how dare you? And he's like... And then in 2007, I think, when Munich came out. 2005. Uh, 2005. He Like, I feel like 
all right, it's time to to think about this in a different way, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think. Yeah, no, and then you had a few years in 2006 or seven. you had United 93 coming out, which is directly about the, the attacks on, on, uh, on New York. Mm-hmm. Big ballsy yes. decision. So it was, that's something that was really interesting, was I couldn't find the specificities of how 9-11 affected Spider-Man, but, like... I mean, in terms of the industry, everyone was just trying to figure out, what do we do? You know, even Michael Bay had a quote that I thought was really interesting. Some directors, though, do not support altering a pre-9-11 picture based on the post-9-11 sensibilities. Among them is Michael Bay, the maker of Armageddon, a 98 summer disaster flick that shows one of the towers ablaze after a meteor strike. Uh, And Michael Bay says, you can't change history. Art is art. It's a form of expression. Movies are shot, edited, and finished. For the world to see they don't get re-edited because the history changes if we go there that means every movie must change every book every short story every painting of new york in the past 30 years it would never end and he has a point right yeah and that was but I, I think it it kind of reminds me of how in like a tv edit like i would understand if you're putting a movie on tv tv circuit in 2002 and all of a sudden there's a twin towers it's like hmm, maybe if we just cut out this 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 five second clip right here it's fine then but in the grand scheme of things probably best to leave them in but in that if it comes out within that window i feel like you're gonna lose the effect of your movie a little bit because it's it's, the audience is gonna focus on something else you Mm -hmm. know it's why they would take out uh kevin spacey in that movie all the money in the world yeah you know like it's going to distract you from the movie. So we're going to take him out. Yeah, no. And I, and I, I still agree with that. I mean, TV, TV stations all around the world have their own rules. They're going to do that. Uh, I think what we're talking about is more of the grand scheme, which is like, how do you make these decisions? Cause I know Jennifer, mm-hmm. Jennifer, the director of kissing Jessica Stein, I, to some extent, she said it was gut wrenching. All these images that were meant to be beautiful and romantic were now harrowing and triggering in the midst of a rom-com that was intended to make you laugh, not traumatize you. Yeah. Uh, She said that her and her colleagues debated intensively about whether to leave in the Trade Center scenes and risk inflicting more pain on people or remove them and possibly erase or misrepresent history. In the end, they chose to reshoot the scenes. She she asks herself she asks herself now whether the original scenes might have stood the test of time as the despair of losing the towers ebbed. Definitely, it means something else. I think. Yeah, but it is it is one of those things that is very interesting, and that's something that Spider Man had to deal with. It's something that Spider Man Two dealt with even more because Spider Man yeah. Two was actually I found more stuff about that because Spider Man Two directly dealt with nine eleven because yeah it that was, movie started production after 9-11 the events of it had happened already this was a mm-hmm. film post 9-11 different context different pl- playing field right even if nine even if spider-man 2 people were willing to forgive spider-man if it included the twin towers and stuff because it might have triggered some people but it was something that was made in the midst of it you know sony didn't know what was going to happen so that's why they got rid of the teaser but spider-man 2 had a different playing field and they were very reminiscent of that i mean there's that meme of Doc Ock, right, in the foreground and in the background, you have all the pictures of the American flag of flags. And there's a meme where it's like, how many American flags do you want? And and the producer's like, yes. <laughs> you know? Jesus Christ. But it's yeah, a lot. It... But but that movie was made post 9-11. It makes mm-hmm. sense. That scene with the train 
took on a yeah. very different context. The whole story was really about heroes, right? Heroes not in uniform, right? Because that was the whole that was the whole thing about everyone was a or a lot of people were in were heroes in 9/11, not just the firefighters and the police officers, but the people helping others. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then you had the, you know, that the big quote of nine of 9/11 was when they ran out, we ran in, referring to the firefighters, right? Mm-hmm. Peter Parker runs into a burning building. That's like a big set piece of the film. And thematically, that whole movie's about like how even if you choose not to be responsible for people or for the events happening around you. Traumatic. Traumatic events are just going to be happening around you, even if you're not responsible for it. So thematically, there's a bit of 9-11 in that story, right? Of choosing to be responsible or not, right? And it was really that scene with the subway where people saw the people in the subway saw Peter. They're like, he's just a kid, no older than my son. That was a moment for New Yorkers to kind of reflect in on, on their role in 9-11 and kind of the people that helped and that you don't need a uniform to be to be a superhero right you could be a hero in your own way and it was it was really interesting kind of reading someone's interpretation of spider-man 2 from that lens from someone mm-hmm. who had survived 9-11 and known that spider-man 2 was made post 9-11 right yeah it's, and it's, I, I, it makes me wonder if you know how in the Avengers, Loki attacks New York? Mm-hmm. I wonder if, like, and that becomes a thing that happened, a, a, an event that is referenced in future Marvel films. I wonder if that was intentional because we we know of a traumatic event that happened in New York. You know what I mean? Well, that, that I mean, it, the article that I was, or the, the excerpt that I was reading was really interesting because it was talking about the evolving state of superhero films especially in the 2000s right because Mm -hmm. you had 2002 spider-man in 2004 that one you know avoided 9-11 but yeah slightly referenced it and then you had Mm -hmm. one that was built around the idea of responsibility post 9-11 and then you had the dark knight which kind of dealt with some of the repercussions of terrorist acts right because the Joker's a terrorist, and then you had Batman responding in a morally ambiguous way with like, yeah, you know, with like the, the cell phone stuff. Exactly, that was very reminiscent of the Patriot Act. And Morgan Freeman's like, this is too much. <laughs> yeah, so you had films that dealt with that, but then you saw a point where kind of people were more and more okay with seeing these grand acts of violence that were that weren't traumatizing or that weren't triggering or that weren't morally ambiguous it was very black and white right nobody watches the end of avengers depressed or really sad or even like conflicted as to how it feel but i mean i'm sure i'm i'm positive that there are some new yorkers that watch that and it does trigger them because they might have been there at ground zero a hundred percent that's not what i'm saying but i as a whole i think society has just moved past seeing these grand displays of violence and when set them you know i kind of how they did maybe a little bit beforehand i mean i know there's stuff like armageddon and stuff but armageddon it it came out before that was just like a special effects extravaganza like you're like kind of rooting for all these places to be destroyed you're going like oh the the monuments yeah you know you know it's like you're talking about in independence no or nobody cares about paris being blown up 
but but 9-11 kind of like you do that like after a terrorist attack in paris no way that people would would not be okay with that no no i mean yeah 9-11 basically like shook the entire country and it did take years for that to kind of dissipate in a way for at least hollywood films to now make new york their playground i mean how many times has Mm -hmm. new york been destroyed in marvel films or attacked you should say i feel like it's every time every time i mean i'll say this new york is destroyed by the end of avengers at least how many times that city been rebuilt in the marvel universe exactly but you know it i mean it has happened and it is kind of evolving with kind of the audience's demand of these superhero films but it is something to it is an interesting thing to kind of reflect on um Mm -hmm. but man i mean i i don't envy reading about it i didn't i do not envy studios responsibility at that time because what the fuck do you do do you have an artistic responsibility and keep the image in like Scorsese and Gen- or, uh, like Scorsese did? Or do you avoid it at all costs and just just, you know, try to give people some escape from the fucked up reality that they were living in at the time? You know, it's, it's kind of like a I don't know if this is appropriate, but like a vague tweet about it, because it's like this is about that, but not really. Mm hmm. You know, like, oh, you mess with one of us, you mess with you mess with all of us. I know what you're I feel like I know what this is supposed to be, but you're not explicitly like talking about it. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And I mean we, we even saw that in the past few years with COVID. Yeah, and like I feel like this time they were like, All right, let's do movies about this. Well, like, immediately it was, afterwards. I saw I think it was I, people were still trying to figure out what to deal with it because there were some shows and movies that ignored it. COVID didn't happen. The world went on. COVID was everything. Then you have people who actually dwelled into it where it's like, this is a part of our lives. This is how we deal with it and stuff like that. And then you had films that avoided, wanted to avoid it at all times. No Time mm-hmm. to Die. Have you seen No Time to yeah. Die? I have not. And I'm a huge Daniel Craig Bond fan too. Oh, you are? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a good movie. But it was funny because when you watch the film, I'm not going to spoil it, but when you watch the film... You're, you watch and you're like, oh, I understood exactly why they delayed this movie by a year. Uh, it makes 100% why. And it's 100% clear why. It was, yeah. reading about it, that was definitely uh, a tough thing that they had to go through. The studio and it's just filmmakers and the film industry. And just, I mean, for everyone, you know, especially Americans had to, had, to, had to deal with it. But the film industry, you kind of think, oh, just it's not a big deal. But a lot of them were just conflicted as to what the fuck do we do? <laughs> yeah. So going back to the film, you know, the original budget was 70 million. It went up to 100 million when they found out that, you know, there's a lot more visual effects stuff that has to be done. And it was the it was supervised by John Distro, which we mentioned earlier, worked on Star Wars. Pretty cool guy. He was nominated for an Oscar for the work on this film. And he would eventually win for Spider-Man 2 in 2004 nice spider-man lost the visual effects award to the two towers and in 03 return of the king in 2004 spider-man 2 came in and took it nice Uh, that's that's interesting how the two towers came out in so close after 9-11 that didn't seem to have anything to do with how they made that movie no 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 no. but again i think it was that fantasy realm 
the visual effects work was really tough because they had to because they did i mean it wasn't just like wire removal and stuff they did full-on like they put peter's head on a skinny boy's body to kind of give him the impression that he was a nerd just a little bit of the before and after yeah and then exactly um and they didn't want to film it months apart so they were like and so so toby didn't have to lose a bunch of weight too um and you know they had to like digitally like change the smoke of when norman osborne converts into the green goblin from like white to green but a lot of the work was spent on the swinging and the camera movement and the spider sense which was a huge thing it's one of the last things that they actually finished you know in the in the high school hallway where you see the mosquito oh it's like the the bullet time kind of thing (laughs) yeah that was one of the final things that was completed for the film and that took months all that stuff i mean it was worth it yeah, because I feel like that's like the that's like the next step to bullet time. And then you have Quicksilver in the X-Men movies where he's just like going so fast with with the t- time in a bottle and then in with sweet dreams and everything. Oh, yeah. Well, in perfect like done very well in Days of Future Past and perfected in Apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. One of the final steps. So this movie got made and one of the final steps was actually getting a PG-13 rating for this film. This movie almost got an R rating. Wow. Can you believe that? I cannot believe that. Like I can see where, okay, it gets pretty violent here. Uh, this guy gets impaled, which is, I know stabbing is like a big thing is mm-hmm. to get you an R rating, especially with how they film it. Like you see, you see the edge, you see how fast it's going. And then you see the blades come out behind a brick wall. And around knowing. his groin, too. Yeah. And you know that that went through a person because you hear, like, the wet, you know? And you so. hear him screaming, ah! <laughs> yeah. I mean, so here's what it says. In the U.S., the film was given, was almost given an R rating for the by the MPAA due to the, due, due to the intensity of the final fight between Spider-Man and Green Goblin. So it was originally... In, there's that one shot where Green Goblin punches Peter and like mm-hmm. the spit comes out, but it was originally blood. So they oh. wanted to So they had to CGI the color out and make it white. <laughs> make it Wow. Know, spit. Uh but it was ultimately given a PG thirteen. However, in England, uh they gave it a twelve certification, which is kind of their version of PG thirteen. Mm-hmm. Um but due to the popularity of Spider-Man to younger children, this this gave some controversy. People were saying that it was it deserved a 15 rating just because how mm-hmm. intense some of the fight scenes were. But it was, you know, it was given a PG-12. So the rating was actually a bit of a of a, a bit of a hassle that Sony had to deal with. And it makes sense because watching it in retrospect is like, yeah, some of it's violent. Some of the violence is very personal. Like some of the hits hurt. They, they look like they hurt, especially in that final fight scene. He fucks Peter up badly. Yeah. And you've never, and I, I, what I said in the first part still stands. I'd never seen Peter Parker get that fucked up again, ever. And it, I've seen him die like three times. <laughs> exactly. Oh, man. But those are such, just some of the quick details about the making of this film. It's really interesting. I mean, there were some of those things that we talked about, kind of how some of the techniques that they use to kind of demonstrate Peter's growing knowledge, experience with web swinging and kind of the CGI camera movements and kind of how mm-hmm. they got around some of the violence. And it's, it's really interesting film. There's a lot to it. Yeah, Spider-Man became the first film to pass the 100 million 
dollar mark in a single weekend, even when adjusted, adjusted, even when adjusted for inflation. And the re- the previous record holder was Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. They held that for like a minute. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they were like, oh, Damn. Warner Bros. was like super excited. And Sony was like, nah, nah, nah. Which is, it's just, uh, is that all you wanted to say about Spider-Man? Maybe we can, or should we, I know you wanted to talk about Doctor Strange. And I feel like this is a good leaping off point because. Yes. Yeah. I, yeah. I'd love to talk about Doctor Strange a little bit. Um. Um, just because I know people, people, people want want to talk about Doctor Strange and kind of how they feel yeah. about it. And I, we do want to have a Patreon going. Um, we came up with an idea for our first episode, which will be like a video format, and we will each give our personal tier list of the MCU movies. It's going to yeah. be really different because we have very different opinions about some. Of oh these yeah, movies. I have good Maybe- taste. That's that's what that's what you say, but that's also what I say. I have good taste. I wanted you to be like, shut the fuck up. I mean, I don't, I, I don't mean to throw you under the bus every time you say something like that and be like, well, you like Norbit, you know? But I like Norbit. <laughs> so no, but, but you know, you can't define somebody by a bad movie that they like, right? No, true. true. <laughs> There's some weird fucked up reason why he likes. Why he likes that movie? Yeah, it's fine. But 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 to be fair, we do have very different tastes. And I'm also another thing: the Marvel films hit more than they fail. You know, yeah. like like most films are good, and yeah. and so you know, there's going to be some variations. Now, the ones I'm going to be curious about are the top ones. Oh um, yeah, I yeah, I I want to see yours. I already know what mine are. I got I prepared. So if you would like to see our tier list. You would have to subscribe to our Patreon, which we will give you more information about in future episodes. Because we gotta like have a steady stream of content. So if you pay money to see something, you're gonna see something every month. So we have oh, to be absolutely. ready for those early months. Oh yeah. Um, but that's one idea. Um, and we also want to come up with a a series called Modern Grade, where we talk about more modern films and we'll give our opinion of them. And I feel like they should be spoiler free but i don't know yeah I, we'll, I, we'll workshop it yeah for this one we will definitely for this little taste we will definitely try to be a little spoiler free of dr strange and the multiverse of Max. wait so we don't talk about spoilers right okay well so what did you think just in general um i would immediately put this in the top five mcu movies <laughs> okay I love this movie. I loved it. I loved it. And I think uh, you were worried about, are we going to get Sam Raimi back for Doctor Strange? And I was like, of course we're going to get Sam Raimi back. And I normally hate to say I told you so, but I really love saying it this time. <laughs> I told you so. <laughs> that was that was one of my concerns. I agree, I, I agree with you 100%. Um, Even with the top five thing? N- well, okay, not 100% on that. Okay. Um, okay. It's like 90, 90%. Yeah, well, keep going on your assessment. I just go go for it. I I think that Sam Raimi has a very visual style, and uh, a lot of Marvel movie like fights, battles, and stuff. It's just kind of yeah. This is a two hundred million dollar action movie. You're, you're kind of seeing things as you'd expect. A lot of CGI. A lot of uh, I don't know. There's just I can't really remember specifically mom- moments in the battle that you would see in a superhero movie. But 
With Doctor Strange, with superheroes in general, I feel like you should see scenes that you wouldn't see in other movies. You know? Mm-hmm. In Spider-Man, the way he, way he fights people, as I mentioned in the previous episode, is like how Spider-Man from the a guy with those powers would fight. Punches a guy, web, webs him, brings him back for another hit. That's great. I love that. In Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, you have a sorcerer who has all these powers. You have a witch who has all these reality-bending powers. And you get to see that in a very visual way. You know, there's certain shots in this movie that I've never seen in a Marvel movie. Not even close. Mm -hmm. Like with, with this distorted sense of reality with kind of a horror element to it. Something that's so... It's risky, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, it's not a traditional, like, okay, it sticks on here. We're going to, you know what I mean? There's like a flavor to the visual language. And you get that in this movie. And the way that you see magic portrayed is better than any Harry Potter movie, for sure. Ooh. Okay. You know what I mean? Like, when I, when I, when I imagine wizards and witches and sorcerers battling, I don't want to see a green beam versus a red beam that's so boring i want to see magic i want to see things being turned into other things and flung at you you know what i mean and i want to i want to feel that on an audio visual level which you get in this movie there's like a really cool fight scene in this movie <laughs> i know what you're that talking about. You, that's like this is this is what i want in a movie about magic you know? I'll say this, it's one of the most creative fight scenes I've seen in a superhero film in a long time. It's so good. Uh, and the whole idea of like, okay, let's make, yeah, there's a superhero movie. Yeah, it's really campy. Yeah, they're doing like these incredible things. But what about the characters? And the the things that they do for the main characters in this movie is like, wow. You know, like they, they take off with Wanda's story from WandaVision. They kind of like go more into that. Um, they make... Doctor Strange into somebody who's kind of relatable, you know, kind of like with Spider-Man, how it's like, okay, well, he's a superhero, he can do all these things, but he can't get the one thing he really wants. They do that for Doctor Strange. I don't think they've done that. I feel like they do the the arrogant, um, charming dude prototype for a lot of these superheroes, right? They kind of did it for Tony Stark. They're kind of doing it for Star-Lord. But I feel like the way they do it with Doctor Strange is makes me care about him the most. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, so I like what they do for him, and the with the themes of this movie and the fact that they released it on Mother's Day, <laughs> or like on Mother's Day weekend, is like that's really really smart. You know, you you take advantage of the the mental state that your audience is going to be in, and that that kind of helps deliver some of that movie it kind of helps that movie because you're already in that state of mind mm-hmm. so good so good so i put it top five so actually i i take back what i said i agree with you 50 50 because i i like the movie it's not my top five favorite marvel film it's an interesting movie and i still have to watch it a second time because i just you know i like watching movies multiple times just to kind of get you know a feeling of it i think um it's an interesting movie I'll say this. I think my favorite part is the directing. I think the part mm. I dislike I dislike is the writing. Because I think the directing is... This is some of the best directing in, in the MCU films. I think they Sam Raimi did for Doctor Strange what the Russos did for Captain America. 
right? Which was like, you know, Captain America, the first Avenger, you know, kind of didn't make Cap cool, right? But the Russo brothers got a crack at him and they made him cool. They understood like his power levels, how his hits should feel and kind of what his, what's the character's moral compass. And Sam Raimi does that with Doctor Strange to a certain extent. Uh, and he kind of understands this is kind of his powers and his abilities and this is what he could do. And I know without you even mention, we haven't even spoken about this film, you and I personally. Mm-hmm. I don't know what, you know, um, we haven't spoken about this and yet you're describing the fight scene. I know exactly what you're talking about. And it is one of the most creative fight scenes I have seen in a recent superhero film. I can't even really think of one that gets close because it's great and it's ballsy. And I love that. And that's what I want to see in a movie about sorcerers and witches. You did say it's better than anything Harry Potter has done. And I disagree with that. Because yeah, green bean versus red bean sucks. I don't like that either. And Harry Potter is a victim of that. But I will argue that one of the best fight scenes is between, like in terms of magic, is between Albus Dumbledore and Voldemort and Harry Potter and and, uh, and the Order of the Phoenix. When they're fighting at the Ministry of Magic, that fight scene is dope as fuck. I still rewatch that scene every so often because it's incredible. Oh, that, that is a good one, but that, I don't think it's better than anything in Doctor Strange. I think it's better because it's like someone casts a spell and they re- and the other person has to reverse it, and you've got like the glass turning into sand, and then you've got the, oh, yeah. the fire and the water. It's great, and that and that scene is like that is quick. a really good scene. It's like only three minutes long. It's two minutes long and the sound design everything's immaculate it's yeah it's and granted you, you are right though green bean versus red bean sucks which sucks that that was the final fight yeah, and, that and we got a lot of the fighting is just kids waving their wands at each other and then mm-hmm. oh oh this one this one did it too this one missed it's like why don't you just give them guns it, it, you, you, know, you are which someone actually <laughs> did in the youtube video <laughs> someone cha- swapped out the wands for guns which you are right but I still hold that as like the gold standard. Doctor Strange is up there. And I'll say this, Doctor Strange is very capable of having good fight scenes. But for some reason, sometimes I feel like Marvel just like kind of sanitizes it to a certain degree. I don't know because you I look at this that... movie sanitize some some of the violence. <laughs> no, 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 not the violence. No, 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 no. The violence. This might be one of the most violent Hollywood films that have come out in recent it's more violent than the batman and i know people oh. are like oh batman's so edgy it's like nah batman ain't edgy like <laughs> like doctor strange is edgy that this movie's violent <laughs> this movie is if people are talking about whether it should have been r-rated which i still think is kind of a silly conversation but to a certain extent i could kind of see it because there were some some deaths in this movie that i was like whoa, whoa. i did not expect that to happen and then like we're just getting started <laughs> well it really yeah, oh damn i can't talk about it but yeah it, it just kind of progressively gets worse <laughs> yeah and then you even see kind of a throwback to the uh green goblin thing <laughs> yeah yeah except this time let's not imply the blood <laughs> <laughs> but like i mean by sanitize not the violence but i think some of them what they could do because i i you know like we were talking about this, but Spider-Man swinging in the Tom Holland films just doesn't feel as good as the ones in Sam Raimi, right? Like the Sam Raimi Spider-Man swing. I don't know why. Yeah, I mean, we I think talk- he wants to put you in that space visually. Yeah, and like, th- and Marvel's more concerned about just filming. Get it. this done. Move on to the next beat. Yeah, and I, I feel that's what like- it seems like. And I think a little bit to that extent with Doctor Strange, the the fight scene that we're referring to. But I I credit that more to Sam Raimi. 
I do... So I think the directing in this movie is great. I think Sam Raimi directs the hell out of this. And I want to see what he does more. The problem that I have is the story feels a little muddled. Because I don't really understand what the film's trying to get at. Because there's a lot of ideas at play, right? And I don't think we're actually seeing some of the most important details that need, that are important to the story. And... I mean, without spoiling, obviously we can't talk about spoilers, but this movie literally does take place after WandaVision. And she's a huge character. Without her, there's no movie, really. And she's a big character, so you kind of need to devote time to her, but you also need to devote time to Doctor Strange. Because, I mean, mild spoilers, but they keep asking him, are you happy? Like, that's like a reoccurring question throughout the film. And so I'm trying to piece all these things together. I'm like, it feels a little sloppy. Like, there's still a cohesive theme. Like, it's still there, obviously, if you look for it. But, like, what exactly is it saying? I don't know. I mean, I was re-watching Spider-Man 2 um, a few weeks ago. But before No Way Home, actually, a few months ago. And just every scene in that movie was so cohesively put together. Every single scene in that movie is pushing that theme. Not so much here, but I am comparing a, arguably a perfect superhero film versus a not-so-perfect one, in my opinion. But you know, I mean, is that always fair? No. I think some of the... I think it's just a little sloppy like the pacing isn't up to par some of the character stuff is a little murky and some of the inclusion of other characters are a bit questionable multiple characters for me are questionable it ultimately leads to an experience that's like oh that was cool that was awesome but it's not my top five it's definitely not bottom five or any, it's not even close to that but it is an interesting film it's funny because i feel the same way about it as the batman um, I don't know. I haven't seen the Batman. I'm sorry. I'm a bad Batman fan. <laughs> Batman, I like you know, the I movie. Blame, blame Ben, the uh, Justice League and Batman yeah, versus Superman. A, those put a sour. sour but I still, I still watch the suit. Both Suicide Squads in theaters. <laughs> <laughs> and the second one was really good. Second one was really good. Um, you know what, I, I liked Birds of Prey too. Birds of Prey was cool. Birds of Prey was cool. It definitely is not Suicide Squad. Um, the Batman, I felt, I liked it. It was just an interesting film, but not one that I loved. Do you know? Like, there are just, I mean, I've mentioned this before on the podcast. There are just some movies that you watch, and it's like lifting your soul up. Uh, that wasn't either The Batman or Doctor Strange. Both movies that have very, very positive, great things to them, and parts that just don't really gel together all that well. But, I mean, hey, making movies is hard, and, you know, it's... And I know that they had troubles with Doctor Strange. Not troubles, but they definitely had issues with Doctor Strange because the original director left and Sam Raimi was brought on pretty late into the game. And, you know, they were talking about... They were editing this until The until the Wire. Like, this movie was being worked mm -hmm. on very near the release date. So that kind of, you know, you can't help but wonder, like, what were they trying keeping in, keeping out? So... Ultimately, not top five. Very, really cool movie. Really cool movie. I definitely still recommend watching it. I, I and it's good to have Sam Raimi back. And if anything, I'm like, so man, I, I want more of Sam Raimi. I love him doing this superhero stuff. I want him to do another Doctor Strange, a Dark Man. I just want him to direct more. And it just seemed because he did go on an interview and said that he took a break after Oz, the Great and Powerful, uh, just because he felt like he needed to find himself. He just didn't really have a fire to direct anything and you know marvel studios and kevin feige kind of gave him a reason to to start that fire again to have that fire and i'm like you know what thank you kevin i 
I really like that because I love your first name basis with them. Kevin, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, (laughs) I got him on speed dial. Yeah, we go fishing every so often. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, no, thank thank God because it's good to have Sam Raimi back. And again, like having this movie next to most of the Marvel films, it just makes you realize most of these movies are missing that hot sauce. You know? Yes, definitely. It's it's, like you. I want to live in that that parallel universe where. Edgar Wright got to do his version of Ant-Man. Yeah. Because we yeah. would have had this so much earlier. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, 100%, 100%. And, I mean, it's leaning into the silliness of it. And, I mean, yeah, it's funny because people talk about Thor Ragnarok being, like, a very stylized film. Yeah. I never thought so. I always thought it was very bland. For it's especially- so funny how, like, the, the, when Marvel does the style movies, you're like, eh. But when other movies do style... They, it's like that's like their thing, like drive. Mm-hmm. They love it there. Yeah, yeah. It's I, I don't, I mean, but that's but the thing about drive, Baby Driver, is that it has or drive. You know, it has style to it. It has life. But I was a lot I remember, of style. I just remember watching Thor Ragnarok and being like, the style in this is boring. <laughs> that's my opinion. That that's already uh, giving you a hint as to where my MCU list is at. Oh yeah. But this And I, I I love that movie. <laughs> I, I know you do. And I I I do get why people like it. I am an outlier. Um I don't think people are wrong to like it. No, it, it's 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 a fine movie. It's just one that does not resonate with me at all. Yeah, I think it I think when we do that Patreon episode, I my goal isn't to our goal shouldn't be to change each other's minds no, about no, how no. we feel about the movie. I feel like we should try to understand where the other person where the from. other person's coming from. Yeah, because because when I think of style, I think of Doctor Strange. I think of this movie. It's like the camera yes. is moving. And it's the, twirling. It's definitely it's the most the most visual. Oh like, yes, with with the camera movements that you're describing, like man, th- the way this camera moves, unlike anything else in the MCU. Yeah, no, no, no. It's not even. It. I don't even think it's close. Yeah, not even that first Doctor Strange is up to it. And the doctor, first Doctor Strange, had some. It did have some neat movement, but nowhere near as this. There's like this one scene at the very end um, with Doctor Strange that was insane, and I was like, "This is what I'm talking about. This is the shit you need to be doing." But yeah, I mean, th- those are just my opinions overall. Um, I still recommend it. Go watch it. You know, I mean. Oh yeah, it's so much fun. Dude, you're it's not so much gonna. Fun. You're not. I mean, maybe you'll love it. Maybe you won't. Uh, but it's not a waste of money. You know, that's not. This isn't one of those like, oh, like you're just wasting your time and money. No, 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 no. You're gonna walk out. You're gonna get a good time. Yeah, and don't compare it to everything everywhere all at once because no no that's that that is a fucking masterpiece that's probably one of the best movies ever made it's funny because (laughs) jamie lee was kind of starting it was trying to start like a little friendly competition just because it's multiverses yeah i like that that that's fun you know that's like co like those are actors just like you know like kind of uh you know like just play fighting but people are actually taking it serious and i'm like all right relax hey, look how like, much money dr strange made like shut the fuck up that movie had it's got fucking but then it's dr. also strange like, in it but then it's like well look at how much look at the rotten tomato score of everything everywhere all at once and it's like two different movies at two yeah, different, diff- different levels different movies yeah don't don't compare them just because they have multiverse in common doesn't mean they're the same is watch both of these films and you're gonna have a good time but they're yeah, not you, the same you will go through Every single emotion and everything everywhere all at once. Yeah. And you're For Doctor Strange, some... it's mostly like, this is cool. 
oh yeah, you're going to see some fucked up stuff too. And it's also <laughs> just expanding on that Marvel world. And they do a good job of it. So it's like, yeah, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's funny because after watching it, I'm like, man, why aren't the other Marvel movies better? <laughs> it made me demand more from the previous movies. And I noticed that as I was building up my tier list, I'm like, at the end of it, I was like, yeah, this this is good. This makes sense. No, no, hundred me. percent. <laughs> I mean, I think it's pretty close to my top five, um, but it's not there. We'll um, get into it on our on that it. Patreon episode. It'll be fun. I want it. I want to to get into it, and I think making a video format will be a first for us, which might be uh, harder than it sounds. But I'm willing to to do it. You know, it'll be fun. No, it's gonna be worth the effort. Hundred percent. All right. Okay. And I, I think that's it. I do we yes. need to do quotes? We need to do quotes, dude. That's our thing. Like we mm-hmm. didn't. <laughs> All right. So for the end of our episodes, we instead of giving a five star rating, which might be subject to change in when we do the uh, modern grade episodes on the Patreon, but for our main main sh- main uh show, we instead of doing five star ratings, come come up with a quote from the movie that best represents how we feel about the movie. Or it could just be our favorite quote. George usually goes first, and George usually breaks the rules. I always have two. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and I gotta go two here. Okay. So my first one is gonna be a Willem Dafoe quote where he's with Aunt May, and he's like, finish it! Deliver us from evil! He's like, finish mm-hmm. it! Man, that's gonna live rent-free in my head. Till I die. <laughs> and what's so um, funny is that he's he's mad about the prayer from Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. That's why he's doing that. Yeah. <laughs> Say grace, Norman. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my other quote, look, man, I'm a basic bitch. I just, I deal with it. Yeah, I, I embrace it. And my favorite quote is, with great power comes great responsibility. Now, the reason that's my quote is because they had so many high highly sought after talent for this movie i mean they they went with leo james roland tony michael david tim Shyamalan. i mean again they, with these first name bases yeah you know me man I'm, I'm on a first name basis with all these guys <laughs> you know i'm the guy in hollywood then they had toby hooper they had james cameron leo james all these guys but they went with the underdog they went with Sam Raimi. He had a lot to prove, right? He had he had great power with this movie because his budget was a hundred million, and a lot was riding on this movie, right? Because Hollywood still wasn't sure about superhero films, and it was time for Sam Raimi to prove them wrong, and he did. But he could have easily failed and messed up. But he understood the lesson that Peter has to learn in the film is that with great power comes great responsibility. And we would be in a very different Hollywood system if he had failed miserably. And he did it. And he stuck to his gun and he made the film he needed to. And I think we're all the better for it. So, yeah, that's my quote. Great quote. Yeah, I was tempted to, to do with great power comes great responsibility because I feel like it's a quote that a lot of people with great power don't listen to. No, so, no they do not. <laughs> um, but I was, after doing all the research and, and reading about how this movie changed hands and everything and how this character has remained so endearing throughout the years that he's been represented in film so many times and how the every different ad- iteration of him 
like changes future versions of him and somehow that makes him like even more relatable i think Mm -hmm. my quote is from when aunt may is in the hospital and she's hearing about peter talk about you know all the things that he's doing and she says you do too much you're not superman you know (laughs) (laughs) which is is a funny line because he's a superhero and in, within the history, Stanley was worried about him being mistaken for Superman, so he put the hyphen in his name. <laughs> um, but also, Spider-Man does a lot. Like he's he's in in robots controlling robots in in Japan. He's like in an animated series where he gets killed, and then Miles Morales, a biracial kid, becomes Spider-Man, and that's just the Spider-Man of that world. Like Spider-Man is is an everyman. And he's so relatable and I don't know, sometimes it feels like we're doing a lot in our in our lives too, you know? Sometimes we need a break. And sometimes that break is watching Spider-Man or watching some silly superhero movie in theaters. So that's my quote. That's a good quote. All, All right. right. So that's that's gonna be our episode. Um, that's gonna be it for our Spider-Man series from the first Spider-Man movie. Maybe we'll come back to do Spider-Man 2 or Spider-Man 3. Um, oh, we definitely will. It's only a matter of when. But I think for our next film, you wanted to do a Bruce Lee film. Yes, I'm leaning towards Enter the Dragon because it is May. It is um, uh, AAPI Heritage Month, and I read some news about um, some news about the Bruce Lee family's decisions with future representations of Bruce Lee. I know you're not a Street Fighter guy. But mm-hmm. Street Fighter is one of the most popular fighting games of all time. Mm-hmm. And as with almost every other fighting game, it has a character who uses Bruce Lee's fighting style, Jeet Kune Do, and who kind of looks like Bruce Lee. His name is Fei Long. Well, the composer for Fei Long's music in the upcoming Street Fighter VI said that the Bruce Lee family no longer wants comedy representations portrayed in media. So Fei Long is gone from Street Fighter. Jesus. And I can't I can't blame him. Kind of blame Tarantino for this, but that's another story. Yeah. Um, so I just want to kind of go back and see who Bruce Lee was, like with one of his films that like made him a star, an international star, because he is very important to, to Asian Americans out there. You know? Oh, 100 percent. It's we've come a long way from how things were before when he was like becoming a star and the obstacles he had to overcome to to become this like immortal character that everybody knows about um so i, I do want to like go back and see a bruce lee movie um i'm leaning towards enter the dragon kind of interested in game of death but we'll we'll, we'll come back with the bruce lee movie in two weeks all right thanks for listening guys and we'll see you on the next episode yeah you can find us on social media at retrograde underscore pod on Instagram and Twitter. We have a Facebook group. Uh, We are on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher. So wherever you see us, be sure to give us five stars. Helps other people find the show. Give us a review if you want. It's going to be time consuming, I know. Um, But with that, we will see you in two weeks. Bye-bye.